0: In Matthew 5-7, to we learned about the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' message as our King. In chapters 8 and 9, we saw the power of the King, Jesus healing and casting out demons. Today, we see a new part of Matthew's Gospel as the message of Jesus goes forth through the Word proclaimed and the signs done under Christ's power by the Apostles. There's some things in here you think are very strange and some things very unique to these 12 apostles called, as it says, at this time to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But we look at this passage not only in that context but beyond as we look at the end of Matthew, the Great Commission, the Book of Acts, and Christ's mission for his church. A mission that is an extension of the mission of Christ himself. What is the mission of the church, loved ones, in one sentence? To make disciples of Jesus. We don't want to overly complicate this. What message do we bring? The gospel. The announcement of the king. The word of God. God's plan in a story in the Bible. Out of love and grace. To save a sinful people for himself through the work of Jesus. That we would commune with and enjoy God forever. What's the point of this mission? To show how weak we are and how we only do this by the strength God supplies. This is God's mission, not ours. Christ gives us grace to be a part of this, yes. It is his compassion that we want each other to be reminded of today and we want to bring to the lost around us. He called, he gave, he sent His covenant is the same from the days of Abraham, whom he called and gave the promises of the gospel and sent. And here today, we see the mission of Christ for his church. Do we have faith and trust the Lord to supply his strength to us in our weakness? First, Jesus calls the 12 apostles. Jesus here prays that there would be workers sent out going into the world, that there would be a harvest of souls. And now, in answer to the prayer, do you see, we have 12 apostles. Why 12 kids? Is that number random? Who are these guys? Jesus calls 12 apostles to lay the foundation of the New Testament church, connecting us with the Old Testament as there were 12 tribes of Israel, sons of Jacob, out of which the covenant people of God came. Now Christ is inaugurating a new age in redemptive history, a new community, not just believing Israel, but believing men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be brought not to an earthly promised land, but to a heavenly one. The connection is there with the Old Testament. These 12 apostles laid the foundation. Ephesians tells us that they were a part of God foundation laying for the church throughout all of time to proclaim this gospel. There are no modern day apostles. They are unique. There are modern day Christians, that's who you and I are, disciples, pastors and elders and deacons, but no modern apostles. They were called as personal representatives of Christ. They saw the risen Christ. Their work is unrepeatable. Their goal is to exalt Christ. If they were here today, they would want to ask you and me, what do you think of Christ? They are pointing to the foundation of the foundation, the cornerstone, who is Jesus himself. And we are an apostolic church. As we continue in the teaching of the apostles, the Bible stands over us. We don't stand over it. Who are these characters? Some you might know by heart, kids. Some you might have not really known much about. And some the Bible doesn't tell us anything about. They're not well-connected. They're not religious leaders. They're not well-funded. And they're not well-educated. All but one of them are Galileans. That means they're from outside of Jerusalem. They're quick to fall asleep, miss the point, and run away. What was important about them is not their credentials, but the calling of God, the grace, the love of God, who saves sinners like these men and sinners like us. Four of them are fishermen. One is a hated tax collector, one is a political revolutionary, one is a skeptic, and one is a traitor, and one denies. Simon Peter and his brother Andrew are fishermen from Bethsaida and then Capernaum. Simon, his name means shaky. By grace, Jesus changes his name to Peter, meaning rock, not by Peter's strength, but by Christ's grace. Peter, the one who would deny Christ, who would write first and second Peter, who would himself be crucified on a cross upside down, as church history says, who was the interpreter of Mark's gospel. When you read Mark, you're reading Peter's firsthand accounts. Then you have James and John, two more fishermen. Anybody like fishing out there? These guys, James and John, were fiery, sons of thunder. Jesus' cousins, their mother, Salome, is Mary's sister. This James is not the half-brother of Jesus. It can be confusing as you read the New Testament. James, Jesus' half-brother, wrote the book of James and was at the Jerusalem Council as a leader in the church in Jerusalem. This James was the first of the twelve to die as a martyr for Christ. The first under Herod to be beheaded. His brother is John. If Peter is the guy with a foot-shaped mouth, as one person says, if Peter is the impulsive one who talks too much, John hardly talks at all. But John writes a lot. John, the disciple Jesus loved, the writer of the Gospel of John. First, second, third John in Revelation. Philip, from Bethsaida, like Peter and Andrew. So these guys perhaps knew each other. Philip responded to the call of Christ and found Nathanael, who is also called in your text here, Bartholomew. And then you have Matthew himself, the writer of the gospel, a tax collector, the one that we talked about a lot last week, and Doubting Thomas, we talked about him a few weeks ago, Maybe a bit of a pessimist. We don't want to read too much into it. Peter, maybe a bit of an optimist. you got guys from all over the place. James, the son of Alphaeus. Do you notice that name? Mark calls him James the Less. Little James. We know nothing more about him other than church history tells us he went to Persia to preach the gospel. Where is Persia, children? Modern-day Iran. Where do people say is the fastest growing church in the world over these last number of years? Iran. Amazing. God is doing a work there. This James was crucified on a cross. James, the son of Alphaeus. Then you have Thaddeus, which means a gift of God we named our son, Thaddeus. We don't know if this is the same guy as Judas, the son of James, or if Thaddeus died and then Judas, the son of James, took his place. But this is not Judas Iscariot. Simon the Canaanian, or the zealot, that's an interesting one. The zealots, as Sinclair Ferguson writes, were a group of Jews zealously committed to the kingship of God, so much so that they regarded anyone else who was a ruler in any context to be a blasphemer. Under the condemnation of God's law, and open to the death penalty. A zealot, in some cases, was a terrorist. They hated more than anyone else the Romans and anyone who would defend the Romans. Jerusalem fell in 70 AD to the Romans. Some strongholds still held out. The last of them, do you know about this story maybe, was in a place called Masada, occupied by zealots, Rather than allow their families to fall into the hands of Rome, those zealots slaughtered their families and committed suicide. 960 of them died. Only two women and five children escaped by hiding in a cave. Simon was a zealot, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Matthew, another apostle, was a tax collector. And you wonder, as Alistair Begg wonders, how are these guys on the same team? only by the grace of God to show there's no sin beyond Christ's power to forgive and that God can unify those who in an earthly sense absolutely would hate each other through the gospel, through his love, through his spirit. The New Testament encourages us to be zealous for Christ. If someone were to ask you and me, what are you most zealous for? What's the zeal that drives our lives the most? What would our spouse or friend say? And then as we think, if I had served Christ with half the zeal with which I have served, fill in the blank. We don't want our life to end that way. We don't want to think that way. and We don't want to go on another day that way. God, give us the spirit of God to be zealous for Jesus. And then there's Judas, the only non-Galilean among the 12. The only one that seems to be good with numbers and money, the strategist. From the outward perspective, this is your guy. He is the one you'd want leading. Something that would keep us up late at night would be thinking, Jesus includes among the 12 a man who would betray him. God doesn't make mistakes. It's a reminder of the visible and invisible church. It's a reminder that it's possible to outwardly walk with Jesus, to appear to be close to him, and to be lost for all eternity. It's a warning to all of us, pastors and leaders and church members alike. We are weak. We need the grace of Christ. That's what these men remind us of. We identify with them in their struggle and sin and with their need of Jesus. You too have been called, not to be an apostle, but as a Christian. You have callings as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives, as siblings and friends, in your work. You have callings in your church. You have callings to serve. And we cannot do any of those callings and be faithful in them without dependence on the Lord. Our best strategies, our best plans, are nothing unless God provides the fruit and gives us the grace. When we are most aware of our limitations, we are most useful to God. When God calls you and you feel inadequate, that is the platform for him using you, beloved. 2 Corinthians 4. You have this treasure, and I do as well, in a jar of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. An awareness of our weakness is a gift of God's grace. If we think, I've got it, I'm okay, we are in big trouble. As new members have joined the church today, it's a reminder for us to connect together and ask this question Who is being built up in the faith of the gospel because of my and your investment in their life? Is there someone you can point to? It doesn't have to be here, but somewhere, somewhere someone, somewhere that's being blessed. We often think, Who is doing something for me? Why doesn't anyone help me? But if we are all helping one another, then someone is helping us as we're blessing someone else with the gifts and graces God has given to you. So you see someone you don't know today? How do we connect? Invite them over. Follow up with them. Have coffee. Meet them. Encourage them. We want a culture of gospel discipleship here where there are One or two people that you're investing in. Say you're going to the ladies' study on Thursday. You say to someone, why don't you come join me? Come with me. You're going to visit someone who's a shut-in. Call up a friend and say, come along. You're having someone over to your home. Invite someone else to come and help you as you show hospitality. Together, not alone, we live the Christian life. As DeYoung says, Our greatest strengths are also the areas in which we are in greatest danger. Here's what he means by that. We tend to rely on what we're good at. So if someone has money, they tend to rely on their money. If someone's good-looking, they might rely on their good looks. If someone's a good economist, they might rely on that or a good teacher. God's given you those gifts. Don't be ashamed of that. But what's the danger? The danger is we're tempted to rely on ourselves and think, I'm good at this, I've got it, no problem. But the work we do is in the strength God supplies. That's what these apostles teach us. If you think today, I can't do anything of significance for Christ, but I trust Jesus will work through me. You are the person God is looking for to be a blessing, as many of you are, to your church family, your friends, your neighborhood, your school, your work. Trusting God is powerful. God provides. God, give me the grace of repentance. I've been lazy. I've been a consumer at times, religiously or relationally. I've had false humility, or I've been really proud. Forgive me for my fear of man. Give me Jesus, the song we just sang. Who would gather these 12 guys together? Only Jesus. In what other context would we be gathered today? If we said, okay, everyone show up on Monday, we're going to a twins game and it's really cold. Maybe two of you would come. <laughs> I love the twins. In what other place would we all be united? Only in Christ, only by the gospel, only by the spirit. Christ, the cornerstone, holds us together. Ephesians, in him, you are being built together, Emmaus Road into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. God is building something right now on the foundation of the gospel that the apostles preached. Here we are today by the grace of God, the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. The nations are being blessed. The gospel is going forth. Not only do we grow together, secondly, we grow as we go. Jesus sends the twelve. It is by our love for each other and for the lost that others will know that we are Jesus' disciples. We love the Lord because he first loved us. We look up to God in faith. We look out to each other in love. Our good works aren't the gospel, that they flow from the gospel. When we are inconvenienced for each other, that's a sign of God's spirit at work when we serve. And... As we build bridges with unbelievers and reach out to them in love, loving them as one made in God's image, loving them as one who has dignity and honor and value, and praying, God, you have many in this city for yourself. Bring them to Christ. In the context of this mission, Jesus calls, gives, and sends the apostles in a unique way. We are not called to go just to the 12 tribes of the lost sons of Israel. We are not called to go on a short-term mission trip in exactly this way. But we do see the same gospel that they proclaim that we proclaim. Jesus sends these disciples out, announce the gospel, and do signs. You notice that? Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. How did they do that? Jesus did that through them. It's Christ's power at work to authenticate the message of the gospel that they're proclaiming. What are they proclaiming? Well, in verse 13, they're proclaiming peace. Speak peace to these places. Not a wish, not a hope, but a pronouncement in the authority of God. What kind of peace? Peace. Peace related to the kingdom of God that has come near. We know so much more than even they did as Jesus sent them out, don't we? We know that God became man, that he suffered and died, that he was raised from the dead, that the Father sent the Son, the Son ascended to heaven, the Son and the Father sent us the Spirit, and the Spirit sends us out. Yeah, they knew some of that, but this is before the cross. It's a really interesting passage. The kingdom of God has come near. What is the kingdom of God? We don't want to overly complicate it. Strictly speaking, it is the new heavens and new earth. 1 Corinthians 15. Steve Ball says, it is the consummation of all things. When God is all in all. It is the day when you will have a resurrected body in a new heaven and a new earth, patterned after Christ's resurrected body. It is the day of hope, the day we long for, the day of Christ's return, when he makes all things new. One of our brothers was there as another church member died this week. And as we are comforting his widow... We read, among other passages, 1 Corinthians 15. Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but we who are in Christ will be raised from the dead, patterned after Christ's glorified resurrected body, and we will always be with the Lord as his body is being taken out of his home. That is the promise. He has died and gone to be with the Lord. That body of that 87-year-old man who died will be raised again in glory to be like Christ in his resurrected body. Christian do you believe that that has hope for us now the kingdom is already and not yet already it has come in the sense that Christ has come the powers of the age to come he has defeated death through his death and resurrection and he has given you his spirit and you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ right now and where he is you will be also and we proclaim that message of Christ risen and Christ ascended and Christ reigning Jesus has ascended and has all authority in heaven and on earth. He rules all things, even over his enemies, including the final enemy, which is death. The kingdom of God is being proclaimed. We bring this message, and we do so with joy and gladness. Word and deed. We don't raise people from the dead, but we do care for people's bodies and souls. We care for the sick. We clothe the naked. We give food to the hungry. We welcome strangers. We show hospitality because God loves us and has shown that love to us. We care for body and soul, beloved, because God made you body and soul and he cares for you. We teach others that we are here as a church bringing the gospel to our community where God has us with courage and compassion. Emmaus Road, this is where God has you and I right now. In this city, with all that's going on at the Capitol, at this time, at this place, to bring this gospel with courage. How is the community being blessed with the true life and peace and hope that the gospel brings by us being here? How can we encourage one another? We can do so as we pray, as we build bridges with unbelievers, and as we remind them of what the gospel itself is. Do you remember what the apostles are to be reminding the people of as they're going? Look back in Matthew 9:36. Beloved, if you would sum up the character of Christ in reference to his people, it's summed up in one sentence. Do you know what that is? Verse 36 He was moved with compassion. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Picture a sheep that is bloodied, that is beaten, that is hungry, that is thirsty. That needs a shepherd to love them. The Old Testament shepherds weren't doing that. They were starving them. The prophets were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now a shepherd has come. The shepherd of our souls. The great shepherd of the sheep. The one who would lay down his life for us. The one who would be raised from the dead. He is compassionate. When you tell others of the gospel, tell them, no one who ever sought the compassion of Christ was ever turned away. The compassion of Christ abounds to all who call on him. He cares about your physical needs, your financial troubles, your bad back, your mental illness, your grief over the death of a loved one. He's moved with compassion as your body's getting older and breaking down, as daily trials continue, one day after another, you can never exhaust his compassion. It superabounds for you, beloved. His compassions fail not. More was won for you in Christ than was lost in Adam when he sinned, and in Adam's fall, sinned we all. What sin is so dark in your heart and life that he has not made complete provision for it in his death on the cross for you? Beloved, what burden do you carry that you won't gladly cast on Him, knowing how much He cares for you? What addiction, what struggle, what sin, what grief? Bring it to Him. He is compassionate. He's not pushing you away, He's not rejecting you. That's sometimes why we struggle in relationships, isn't it? Because we fear rejection. And we've been rejected. And we've drawn close to someone and then they've perhaps turned on us or we've turned on them or it's gone back and forth and we sin and we suffer and we are sinned against. God, help us. He won't do that to you. He's full of compassion. He gives you grace. He forgives you for when you've harmed someone and he gives that person grace to ask forgiveness of you. Beloved, Will you come and rest in Jesus? That's his message for us. That's the message we bring to a lost and dying world full of death and decay where people are calling good evil and evil good. What does Jesus say to the apostles? How do we go with this message? Well, these are very unique, aren't they? Don't bring a staff, don't bring sandals. Don't pack extra food. What is going on here? Isn't that strange? You read that? What's Jesus telling us? Your provision is from God. Depend on him. Later on, he would tell the apostles to take money in a knapsack, Luke 22. This is not a universal principle for how a missionary or any of us is to live without anything. But as one man says, there is an interesting application, isn't there? Because whether you live in that day or today, what are the four things that most often consume our thoughts, our money, and our attention? Clothing, food, transportation, housing. Isn't that interesting? That's what he's talking about here. He's not saying get rid of it all. He's saying make the advancement of the kingdom of God first. The key is contentment in Christ and in what he has given you. Enjoy a nice steak and a glass of wine tonight, if God's given you that, and give him thanks for it. But remember not to get diverted, he says. Stay focused. Travel light. The uncertainty of the times is stressed here and for us today. Let your treasure be Christ. There's urgency here. Don't delay. And why do we... Live this way. It's out of the gospel. Do you see that in verse 8? In light of God's abounding, super abounding grace to you in Christ, what will you and I withhold as he calls you to serve? There's nothing, David Strain says, he cannot ask of you if he has not first given you all you need in Christ. Freely you have received in Christ. Salvation is a gift. It costs Christ everything. Now, in gratitude, not out of guilt, not a debtor's ethic, in gratitude for what you have in Christ, Emmaus Road. love and serve the Lord. Love and serve each other. Love and serve the lost. You will preach a message, he tells these 12 men, and others will not like it. Your job is not to seal the deal to them or us. Your job is not to convert anyone. God does, through the message of the gospel, by the Spirit. The harvest is ripe. Some are blades of grass that God will gather to himself. Others, he's saying here, will be destroyed in the fire. Do you see that? Verses 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And you're going to go, these 12, to the people of Israel, and they're going to say, I don't like the message. I don't like these signs. Get out of here. And what are you going to do? Shake the dust off your feet. Interesting passage. Context is king. I'm going to say this maybe twice. You never are told to do that as a Christian. Why? Here's why. In the Old Testament, a Jew went to a Gentile land, came back to the promised land, The Gentile land signified defilement. We don't want that Gentile dust in our land. They shook the dust off their feet. That's where that comes from. Now, Jesus says, as the twelve go to the people of Israel, if they will not listen, they are to be treated as those who are outside the covenant and unbelievers. Same thing in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas. The dust of the feet, beautiful feet that brings good news, is a witness of judgment, a public rebuke. They're outside God's kingdom. It's a covenantal act. In the Old Testament, Israel broke the Sinai covenant. Curses came. Now, the final curses of the the final judgment will be coming. To reject Christ is to be cut off from the Messiah, to be cut off from God, and to be cut off from God's people. We don't shake the dust off our feet when we share the gospel with someone and they reject it. The Great Commission never tells you to do that. Paul never does that outside of Acts 13. What do we do? We pray, we plead, we ask them questions. We answer the questions they ask with love, respect, boldness, courage, and truth. Here's how it does apply. Those who reject the gospel will not inherit God's kingdom. That point is true throughout the history of the church. That applies to us. The kingdom is shut to those who don't believe. Not everyone is going to heaven. The world says be a good person, coexist, meaning co-believe. You see those bumper stickers? We're all okay. And that's a lie from Satan, the father of lies. 1 Corinthians says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? To enter God's kingdom, we must be perfectly righteous. We are not. Paul says, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of us is righteous. The word of the kingdom announces the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, who trust in Christ by grace alone through faith alone. He is righteous. He is compassionate. My righteousness is found in him. It is imputed to me. I receive it by faith. His blood paid for all of my sins. The darkness, the depravity, the guilt, the lack of love. What if someone rejects this message as you read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11? As you tell them, by grace, through faith in Christ, you are washed, you are justified, and they say, I want nothing to do with that, I don't believe that. Every person to whom we speak will be brought before a judgment that will either send them to hell or heaven. The judgment that awaits those in this context who rejected the apostles was worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19. How does this apply today? The severest judgment falls on those who reject the gospel. Those who listen but don't believe. Those who harden their hearts. There is hell and there is hell, hell. It's worse for those who hear the gospel and reject it than for those who never hear it. Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the word of God. What's at stake in the mission of the church, loved ones, is this the peace of the gospel in Christ for all who believe, or the destruction of divine wrath in hell. Heaven and hell are at stake. The church is not a country club. When you share the gospel and someone rejects it, they're not rejecting you. Don't take it personal like that. Pray for them. But if they reject it, they are rejecting Christ, and they are rejecting the only God who is there, and the consequences are eternal. The apostles were rejected. We plant and sow. God gives the growth. What is our mission Emmaus? To make disciples. How? Not in our strength but in the strength God supplies. We are to be faithful and God will bring fruit. What do we bring? The law and the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when God is calling by his spirit men and women, boys and girls, sinners into his kingdom to commune with God forever. Today is the day that we say Jesus bore the judgment. He took the wrath. He took my sins. We preach Christ. Christ is our peacemaker. Christ reconciles us with a holy God. Christ takes enemies of God and makes them his children by his grace, by his spirit. It is Christ we proclaim. He is the good news of the kingdom. And we pray by the Holy Spirit. That sinners will be born again, sinners like us, to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Amen. Let's respond. Let's respond as we sing.